Well, so this actually is a good opportunity to go through the Anapanasati practice as um, it is uh, not just specified in the Anapanasati Sutta, number 118 in the Majjhima Nikaya, but also 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the Great 40, uh, that talks about right, um, the, the Eightfold Noble Path. Um, and so, um, also, many of the Western um, teachings of uh, Buddhism uh, use a meditation method that is solely based upon the Satipatthana Sutta, which is number 10. But as you could tell that Anapanasati is actually the practice for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana rather than the Satipatthana itself. So the first thing that we want to look at is, is the fact that Anapanasati is practice for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's why the Anapanasati Sutta is set up in the formalized way of body, feelings, mind, and mind objects, just the way that the Satipatthana is set up. But that's only a framework for the discussion and for the dissemination of information to where, in fact, it's not to be practiced like that. And that's one of the major methods or major mistakes that are method. For instance, Kawanka's method only teaches step one, two, and three. And they don't even teach anything else about Anapanasati. Uh, and that's not actually the, the correct way of practicing. Um, and so we practice the Satipatthana and Anapanasati then for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment, Sambhojana. Well, guess what? The Sambhojana is actually the, when these factors become enlightenment factors, what that actually means is that these are the skills that were to be developed in the Eightfold Noble Path, and when they become fulfilled as unremitting, then, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path becomes the seven factors of enlightenment. So, um, the seven factors of enlightenment then, or the Sambhojana, are um, developed and uh, uh, taken for um, the final goal, which is um, knowledge and deliverance. All of these things are right there in the Anapanasati Sutta. And at the end of the Sutta, it talks about knowledge and deliverance. And this is actually a good point or a good time to talk about uh, what this Western word, enlightenment, really actually can be used for within the context of Buddhism. Because uh, the word enlightenment has been used all over the place were actually in the beginning uh, and the actual use for the word enlightenment is a war between religion and science and a war between do it the way daddy did it versus looking at what you're doing. Okay, and so um, that was the enlightenment area which actually had a lot of uh, guillotine action in, in France 
with the French Revolution and a lot of stuff like that. So I do not know why the word Buddhism uh, are the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha and Buddhism in the West is so fond of this word enlightenment, but it does have a usage. And here's how it is that there's two kinds of enlightenment. One is uh, if you look at the word light as the deep word or the only important word in the word enlightenment, there are two kinds of light in the sense of two different definitions. There is one definition which means turn the light on. Let's have some photons. We talk about daylight. We talk about lighting up a subject so that it can be seen. Um, that that's why we use flashlights is so that we can see. So this is one of the qualities of the knowledge then is that kind of enlightenment is when we have the knowledge that we need to remove the defilements or the deliverance from the defilements or that basically what we do then that we see what needs to be done and then we do it which is dropping okay and so the second kind of enlightenment is not heavy or is we could use it in the sense of lighten up and a hot air balloon is tethered by ropes and if you cut those tethers the hot air balloon can fly so that's the basic way that we're looking at it is is that we are tied down and tethered down to disappointments and unhappiness and anxieties and all that kind of stuff, literally because we do not see what we're doing. And if we can see what we're doing, then we can cut those bondages and drop those sweaters, and then we can have a happy, easy, comfortable life. And yet, because of the history of Western uh, religious educations and whatnot, Buddhism has been accepted by the West as just another religion or just another system of magical beliefs. And so enlightenment is often uh, thought of as a magical belief because we put enlightenment way, way up there someplace. That it's a long, difficult process. We have to work really hard. And we have a lot of disappointments along the way, but finally we get to the place. That's actually capitalism. That's not uh, the teachings of the Buddha at all. And it also has the quality of time reference. In the sense that enlightenment is something that you can do right now. You can see what's going on right now and drop that stuff right now. It's not a long, long process is just every time that you see it you can uh drop it that's basically the whole teachings of the buddha is look at what you're doing and then put a stop to the stuff it's like you know the guy goes to the doctor and he keeps stabbing himself in the arm with an ice pick and he says doctor every time i stab myself in the arm with the ice pick it hurts why don't you do something about it? Can you put my arm in a sling or whatever and like that? And he and the uh, the doctor says, if sticking your arm with an ice pick hurts, please stop. Don't you see that it's the sticking your arm with the ice pick that's making the problem? Okay, that's basically the way that we live our lives as we go around sticking ourselves with the ice picks of unwholesome uh, thoughts. 
and then they hurt and we wonder why life hurts so often okay so getting back to the original teachings of the buddha the buddha's only teachings one thing and that one thing is dukkha dukkha naroda that word dukkha dukkha naroda means to see the dukkha and to come out of it immediately dukkha naroda and yet in the west uh, partly because of um the whole of our society is based upon delayed gratification even the religions you can't have heaven now you got to wait until you're dead that's almost like uh putting your money in a bank and then saying or then finding out you can't withdraw your money until the bank is closed it's burned down and you're dead and then you can get your money out of the bank that's the way that we look at it in the Western mentality or delayed gratification so that we've got to go for a long, long time. And that is what is the primary reason why people are not practicing correctly is because they're looking for long term goals. If I do this, that and the other thing, then I'll get the reward. Right. Our method is stop doing this, that and the other thing and just take the reward. That's what the practice of Anapanasati is really all about, is learning how to just take the reward, to do the Dukkha Naroda part immediately. And this is what uh, uh, the practice then is based upon with the method that's called the Eightfold Noble Path. And when we call it a path, the Western mentality thinks of it as a path as something that you got to you got to walk down or travel on for a long period of time before you get there. This is much more of a, an understanding that the Eightfold Noble Path is actually a, a method. It's kind of like the method of opening the door. Well, you have a method. You put the key in, you turn the lock, you turn the handle, you push a little, and the door opens. But what the Western mentality is, is that that door is hundreds of thousands of miles or years away, and I've got to get to the door before I can open it. Guess what? That doorway is right in front of you. That's the whole point then that we have to start with, is, is that Dukkha Naroda means that we can come out of it right now. That's why many teachings in, uh, that talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, they kind of gloss right over the Third Noble Truth, where in fact, that one should be the one that we can spend some time with, because that's the state that we want to get into immediately, is into a state of not suffering. And the way that we get into it is, number one, by becoming very, very uh, skilled at seeing Dukkha, and then coming out of it immediately. And the way that we become skilled at seeing dukkha is by understanding the causes of suffering, the second noble truth. And then we can apply the method to come out of that suffering so that we can come out of it easily and quickly. It's not a lot of hard work. In other words, you don't have to suck up for a God and pray and pray and pray and pray and finally get your rewards. No, this one is you just do it. You turn the key, you turn the handle, and the door opens. That's the difference. Okay, so um, starting with the Eightfold Noble Path, then, 
we're going to look at five of the eight items of the Eightfold Noble Path because it's very, very specifically stated in there that Sila is not part of the path, it's the results of the path, or it's part of the path. It's, it's sort of like um, something that trails along, that there's not a lot of work to be put into it. And yet when uh, people are introduced to Buddhism in an ordinary way, um, morality or sila is a really big deal. It's always important. You got to behave yourself. In fact, that's the whole issue about Christianity and sin and being free from sin and uh, all of that kind of stuff. So basically, uh, we can come out of the unwholesome immediately that we don't have to uh, uh, wait for a long, long time with it. So the parts of the path that we're going to be dealing with is right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. These four things, when, when their skills are developed, it brings about a unification or organization of mind. It's, it's kind of like thinking of it as, an, um, as a grandfather clock. And when the grandfather clock is working correctly, then that clock is put together as organized and we can call that then Samadhi. Samadhi is not concentration. Con uh, samadhi is uh, unification or organization. And, and we're going to getting the mind unified and organized so that if the mind is unified in the sense that if you want something, then the mind is not unified. It needs something. What does it need? That which we think we want, right? But if we don't want anything, then the mind is unified, is whole, right? When the mind is whole and unified, and it doesn't want anything, then our sila at that moment is perfect. Why? Because if you don't want anything, you're not hurting anybody. If you don't want anything, you're not killing anybody. If you don't want anything, you're not stealing anything. So our, our morality winds up being, in this regard, an outcome of correct practice. Rather than a job to do to get ready for practice. Okay. And so basically, what we are looking at then is uh, a practice that means that we need to get away just for a short period of time, that we don't have to behave ourselves for years and years and years with perfect sila before we start to practice. Just closing your eyes wherever you are and getting away from it all, letting the world go away is a kind of seclusion and the Buddha was very big on seclusion. So the first thing we have to do then is to get secluded so that we can look at what's going on. Okay, so back to then right view. Right view comes first. We can see right view in two different ways. One, actually, we go ahead and talk about it in the sense that there is a wrong view. And a wrong view means that I can do harm and get away with it. That's the wrong view. That's the view of all politicians. Okay, the next view is the right uh, view, 
that is ordinary right view, that's noble, and its basic statement is, no, you can't get away with it. We're going to hire cops, we're going to have an army, we're going to uh, watch you, we're going to spank you as a child, we're going to do all kinds of things, and if that doesn't work, we're going to hire a priest, and he's going to get you after you're dead, okay? So here comes the, the law of comma. The law of comma uh, is basically stated, actually comma is stated is good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results. It becomes a law when we add the statement, no matter what. Okay, that you can't get away with it no matter what. That the comma machine will dig you up out of the ground just to beat your ass. This is the normal right view. This is the view of all religions, and it's the view that is taught to uh, to most Buddhists. And it's but it's a very Hindu kind of thing. Uh, we'll talk about karma later, but basically, what we see then is ordinary right view is holding concepts, holding beliefs about the way things should be. Right noble view is to seeing things the way they actually are, not the way that we would like them to be. So uh, wrong view has the idea that I want it to be the way I would like it to be so that I can go do anything and get away with it. And ordinary right view say, no, we've got laws and rules here, and those rules have got to be followed because that's the right way to do it. Okay. Both of these um, are problematic. Both of them are set upon a set of standards or, or rules, rituals, and that kind of thing, to where really um, noble right view is an investigation to look at what you're doing, to keep noticing. But we have to remember to note that's when right sati comes in. Sati means that we wake up to remember to wake up to be here now, basically to wake up and to smell the coffee. Now the wake up, wake up and to smell the coffee means that now we're in olfactory senses. We're actually taking a deep breath and breathing in the coffee and we can smell it because we have woken up. If you're asleep, uh, we can't smell anything that we're out of it, all right? And so when someone is daydreaming, they can't smell the coffee or they're not here now. So much of the Eightfold Noble Path is based upon this right noble view, which has to do with actually getting into the senses and observing, rather than being in the mind conceptualizing. Okay, so if we're conceptualizing in concepts and having ideas about the world as infinite and all that kind of stuff, well, we don't know. We only know the world of the senses. But uh, outer space and um, uh, crab nebula and uh, Andromeda galaxies and all of that kind of stuff for almost all of us is just merely concepts. The way things that ought to be, but in fact, almost all of philosophy is based upon how things ought to be rather than how things really are. And so. Um, when we're investigating the way things are they really are, we do so with discerning eye to make a discernment 
And the discernment is, is that what are the thoughts that we have and the things that are happening uh, in this present moment are useful, valuable, and wholesome, or whether they are just the ordinary kind of stuff that I've been doing all along, which may or may not be uh, extremely harmful or just a little bit so, or extremely dangerous or a little bit so. We're going to start having thoughts that are completely wholesome and are not dangerous at all. So uh, when we then uh, see what is unwholesome and wholesome, we then uh, actually take the effort. One's noble right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and to replace them with wholesome thoughts. Also, we could go so far as to say in doing that, we remove unwholesome views and start looking at how things really are. That's one's right effort is to really take a look for this reason. And the Buddha says it like this, that right effort, right uh, sati and right investigation or right view run and circle around each other. They build up together. They are three mutually developed skills. You can think of almost in the sense that when someone is learning the piano, they've got several skills to be developed. One of the skills is coordinating the hands so that they can do very different things, but they do it in harmony with each other. Another one is to read music. Another one is to learn uh, to telling time and learning tempo. So there's a lot of different things that have to be learned that but they work they work together. So right view, right sati and right effort work together, bringing about right noble view. So now let's take these three things and put them together with on with the practice of anapanasati. Okay, so anapanasati is based upon the four foundations of mindfulness, but we don't practice it that way. If we practiced it that way, then you could say that, okay, the meditation student can leave his his feelings, his mind and the mind's objects in the bed. And he can go into the meditation hall and take only the body in there because today is a body meditation. Okay, that kind of thing doesn't happen though. When you go and sit down to meditation, you've got it all there and we have to deal with things but we deal with things one by one as they occur, not according to a formal system or series. And so the Anapanasati for the Western mind, because it's organized the way that it is, it would seem to be practiced that way. And that's been true for quite a long time. Bhikkhu um, <clears throat> Buddhadasa actually started putting that together. Uh, but the books that he's written, I think that there's now four of them on the market that was written over the years. One was written in the 1950s. <clears throat> and the last one was done, I think, in 88 or something like that. So anyway, uh, over time, what has happened is all four of these uh, books here were done in the sequence that they were done in. And so when you get to certain books, uh, certain chapters like way deep into it like on page 216 of a certain book that i know of that's where he's talking about gladdening the mind and guess what he says this is the first thing that you've got to do 
and he waits until page 200 on the book before he says that this is the first thing that you've got to do. Okay, and normally people will read right past that and they don't even pick up on it. Okay, so we got to work on this system of of the sequence of events that we're going to practice on Upanasati um, is basically starting with the wake up, starting with Sati. When Sati happens, we then do an investigation. When that investigation happens, we recognize that the thought that we have is not all of that great. And so we're going to change it with a more wholesome thought. And this is what is step 10 of Anapanasati is gladdening the mind. One takes one's right effort to gladden the mind, to perk it up, to brighten it. And yet most meditation practices are all about going deep into meditation. Okay, so meditators can have deep. Good. They can have it. All right. We're not doing meditation then. We're doing Anapanasati, which is to waken the mind up, brighten it up, gladden it up, and also energize it with the breathing. So that means that with the right effort, we also are going to not just brighten the mind, but we're going to brighten up the breathing also. This is why we start with uh, uh, step one of Anapanasati is the long, deep in-breath, but it's done with mindfulness. Some meditation practices say, watch the breath. And then they do, the students do, and then the mind wanders away easily. That's because they're not developing it as a skill. Here we're actually developing sati as skill, which means we're going to apply that skill on every breath mindfully or with sati to really start to take control of the breathing to make it a long breath to remember that you're going to be taking a long breath you actually require and force it to be a long not force in the sense of struggle but force in the sense that you just do it it's sort of like the force that it takes to push a pencil across the table you have to put some force into it but it's an easy job to do Okay, but we have to put that effort into it. You have to put the effort into the breath or of and the sati to have long, deep breaths as you breathe in and long, deep breaths as you breathe out. Now, this is not to be worked at. Some students come back and said, well, after I did it for a while, I got tired. Well, that's because you're working too hard at it. This is the kind of easy, deep breathing that can be done continuously as long as you can remember to do it and knowing that the breathing will go back to ordinary breathing whenever you're not watching it. So there's also been some research. One of the students sent an article, and in fact, he uh, put it as a comment on one of this, uh, the, the videos um, that had to do with actually this article was a research article that was digging up all of the old research that had been done with breathing. And what they found out is, is that uh, a lot of stuff is being changed in the mind just by doing the breathing. And the people who are doing the research are only doing just that one thing, the breathing. They're not working with changing the mind or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but to watch the breath actually does kind of change the mind. So uh, uh, what the article was pointing out is, is that all kinds of changes happen. The alpha waves change, the chemistry changes, the blood chemistry changes. 
uh, the blood moves from being acidic into more neutral. Why? Because when we're breathing well, the oxygen comes in and uh, forms with the carbon and the carbon dioxide then goes out of the body. And uh, carbon dioxide, when it's in the blood, is carbonic acid. And so it's very easy to see that, yes, the blood pH level is going to be reduced. We're not going to be a bundle of acid anymore. We're breathing most of the things that take that cause acid out. But in fact, uh, um, on the uh, item of uh, losing poundage or losing weight, the amount of carbon that you bring in versus the amount of carbon that you breathe out is the only issue. The, the carbon that you eat minus the carbon that you breathe out. If you breathe out more carbon than you are taking in, then you are uh, losing weight. Okay. Well, car, um, fat actually has a very complex molecule. It's got like maybe 100 to 150 uh, hydrogen molecules, about 50 to 60 carbon molecules, an occasional um, uh, nitrogen and occasionally there's sulfur, but uh, there's only like four to six oxygen molecules in fat. When fat is burned, it needs additional oxygen from the atmosphere to combine with every one of those 55 molecules. And also the oxygen is needed to breathe in to combine with all of that water that now is going to be urinated away. The reason that urine is not all water is because there's also some sulfur and some nitrogen in there when that fat is. So there's some chemistry in here that's really quite relevant to, uh, to let us know that there is, uh, it's well known scientifically that deep, long breathing is very, very beneficial. It's beneficial for our metabolism, it's beneficial for our blood content, it's beneficial for digestion. But it also is really beneficial for the mind because the mind, especially the frontal cortex, you probably heard that almost all of our calories are burned in the mind, in the brain. I didn't know that. Yes, that uh, this is why we want to wear hats in the winter. I mean, the head's pretty small compared to the rest of the body, but that hat keeps us warm because of all of that heat that's being exchanged through the mind. That means that when the mind is really active, it's using a lot of oxygen. If we remember to breathe well, we'll get all the oxygen that we need, and then the mind will not get tired. This is one of the reasons why, um, rest, let's say, tiredness, sloth, torpor, uh, laziness, this kind of stuff is a hindrance. This one's one that's most related to the breathing that the mind will get tired, and if we are breathing well, then the mind uh, takes much longer to get tired. So we are breathing well. We remember to breathe. That's step one, uh, to remember to breathe in long, to breathe out long. But then all of the other stages of Anapanasati have it written. You probably saw that. For instance, uh, in the gladdening the mind, we gladden the mind while we mindfully breathe in long, we gladden the mind, and while we mindfully breathe out long, we gladden the mind. 
that's something that a lot of students don't understand. They say, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to gladden the mind? Am I going to watch the draft? The answer is, is that um, it depends upon how long your mind moments are. In other words, what's the word simultaneous or at the same time mean? It depends upon how fast you are in your measurements. Okay. That you could go so far as to say that both um, solar eclipses and lunar eclipses happen at the same time. If your time frame is 50 years, <laughs> down to 18 years. That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Or you can say that uh, one guy flicks on the light switch and another guy flips on the light switch at the same time and the lights come on at the same time. But if you measure that with an oscilloscope, you can find out that it's unlikely for those guys to both push their switch at exactly the same time. And only then it has to do with how good your oscilloscope is, how fast it is. That in fact, um, uh, that whole idea of, of measurement and, and speed and whatnot, it's good to start looking at it in the sense of um, a mind moment is normally associated with the alpha waves. And when the alpha cycle is at about 10 cycles per second, that means that a thought moment is about a tenth of a second. We can begin to measure that stuff with reaction times. An example, and this is on the internet, you can turn uh, uh, this, you can open this website and the screen will be red for a while, a uh, random time, and then it will turn green. As soon as it turns green, the guy clicks the mouse. So the software measures from the time of greening the screen to clicking of the mouse, how long does that take? And to somebody who is, uh, hasn't tried it before or is not very good, they can get it down to maybe 300 milliseconds. But someone has been training as a sportsman or uh, let us say a black belt martial artist will be down to about two. That's down to that tenth of a second. One tenth of a second to see the green change from red to green and another tenth of a second to actually click the mouse. This, this uh, um, reaction time has been noted that some uh, very excellent sports people and meditators are down to about 180 uh, uh, thousandths of a second. So that's a, a, a little bit less than a, a two tenths of a second for a reaction time. So now we're understanding what we then mean by uh, at the same time could be in the same second, five to 10 things can happen in that second and they all happen at the same time within that 10 second period. This is what we mean by while, while we're mindfully breathing in and mindfully breathing out, that would be only two tenths of a second in a time frame. Uh, let us say if we're slowing down the breathing, ordinary breath is about 20. This system uh, that I was talking to you about, uh, this article that I had read, they mentioned six breaths a minute. That's about the count of 10. That would be like 442 or box breathing in the, uh, the military. Uh, so we're going to go even slower than that. We're going to go uh, from six down to 
five, all the way down to three. At three breaths a minute, that means that you're taking a count of eight on the in-breath, a count of eight on the out-breath, and then a count of four. Eight, eight, four is 20 counts. That's three, uh, that's a, th a third of 60. So that's uh, an eight, eight, uh, four uh, breath would be three breaths a minute. So a four, four, two would be then six breaths a minute. You can get it down to uh, doing a five, five, two, which is uh, 12 count, which is five breaths a minute. So this stuff is actually easy enough to calculate, but we're not there just always counting breath, counting breath. No, we count the breath once or twice just to get the idea of what is a long breath. Because in fact, in a in one minute time, uh, breathing at uh, five uh, breaths a minute, none of those breaths are going to be exactly the same size as any of the others. That's not the issue, okay? The issue is not timing like that. The issue is to make sure that we're breathing long and deep and only taking just a shorter period of time so that we can then do other things. And, and one of the major things then is to gladden the mind. But another thing that can take a mind moment is the actual investigation or the sati itself is going to take a, uh, a mind moment. Not only is the sati going to take a mind moment, but the investigation is going to take one or two mind moments. Then after the investigation, the brightening of the mind and the gladdening of the mind would be the next mind moment. And so we continue this, that kind of cycle over and over and over again. So that means that in the time of one breath, there's a lot of time left for the mind to wander away, as to come back, get it back again, and continue that breath. So but what we're actually doing here is we're talking about really starting to pay attention to what's going on while we're breathing in and while we're breathing out. So this is the basic point. By gladdening the mind, that also can be referred to as brightening of the mind and making sure that the thoughts that we're having are wholesome. And there's a whole range of what we can talk about is wholesome breath or wholesome uh, um, thoughts. First off, let's do it in three groups. We can have some thoughts that we know anyone can just uh, sit down and think about it. We can uh, recognize that some thoughts are downright unwholesome. Not a doubt about it. Thoughts of having an argument with somebody. Thoughts about cheating on my taxes. Thoughts about killing someone. Thoughts about harming things. Thoughts about getting even in revenge. These are all anyone can see as downright unwholesome thoughts. And then there are those kind of haunts that we know for sure are downright wholesome. Not a doubt about it. Like no place to go, nothing to do. Wow, isn't that nice? Everything is okay. Everything is fine. These are 100% wholesome thoughts. There's a whole lot of them there. Uh, and then there are this middle ground, and this middle ground we're going to call junk thoughts. What the job then for the, med, uh, for the student is to develop the skill of right view which means as we develop that skill, 
we're going to have even more discernment so that we begin to see that some junk thoughts were actually, uh, let us say, uh, they were, uh, we had some gratification, that we got some kind of enjoyment out of it, uh, like, the, like the joy of stabbing your worst enemy in the back. Okay, there's a certain amount of joy in that, in uh, gratification, but when we also see the danger in it, only then will we find the escape. And so this is a skill that over time is going to be developed, this skill of right view. Right view then comes first because right view uh, is going to be the determining factor for what is wholesome and not wholesome. Once we develop or start to develop the skill of right view, we begin to uh, uh, consider having only wholesome thoughts. All right. Now, um, I'll introduce just a little bit. There's a sutta number 19, and the name of the sutta is Two Kinds of Thoughts. And the Buddha talks about these thoughts, thoughts that are wholesome versus thoughts that are unwholesome, thoughts of wanting things, greed, thoughts of uh, uh, being afraid of something, thoughts of not liking it, thoughts of hating it. These are unwholesome thoughts. But thoughts of uh, everything is okay, thoughts of friendliness, compassion, kindness, these are all wholesome thoughts. But most of our thoughts are called junk thoughts. All right. So in this sutta, the Buddha gives a story about a cowherd. And the cowherd is not like a drover in Wild West and Rawhide and all of that. But this is ancient India where the guy's got maybe a half a dozen cows. And he's taking them to the pasture. And on the way, he passes through a kind of a village area. And that area then has children. It's got food stalls. It's got uh, clotheslines, all kinds of stuff. And this cowherd has to make sure that the cows are not stealing food off of the food stalls, not trampling on the kids, that they've got to whack these cows with that stick. So the cowherd has a stick, and he goes around whacking that cow. Get back in line. Get in line. Okay. Um, and so uh, he keeps the cows from doing damage. Once they get out to the pasture, they've got their heads down, they're grazing. Now the cowherd doesn't have to stand with the cows anymore. In fact, he can put his stick down and go sit down under a tree and just kind of keep an eye on the cows. Okay, this is the Buddha's analogy of how to get our mind into first jhana is that we have to start by guarding the mind to keep it wholesome. Any unwholesome thought, we whack it. The Buddha also has the statement, aha, I see you, Myra. That aha, I see you is actually gladdening the mind. And we can also think of whacking that thought with that stick is actually the gladdening of the mind. It's putting it back into straight, um, making it uh, appear straight uh, and is not causing any harm or damage. Once we get out to the pasture, that means that every thought is now wholesome. One wholesome thought after another, wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. In this regard, now the mind is free from hindrances. Also, the kind of thoughts that we're having is going to start changing the way that we feel. Uh, one of the ways that I stated is that every, that every one of us our whole lives have been talking ourselves into feeling bad 
Now it's time to talk ourselves literally into feeling good with these wholesome thoughts, and we're going to talk ourselves into it. An, an example of that, of we can have thoughts of dangerous things. We can have thoughts of, I got to hide my stash. We can have thoughts of, I got to do my income taxes. We have thoughts of uh, all kinds of things that are dangerous, okay? We're going to recognize those thoughts as unwholesome, dangerous thoughts and have thoughts of everything actually right now is safe. Right this very moment, never mind about the future, never mind about the past. All we really have is this present moment. Can I feel safe and secure right now? The answer is I can talk myself into that by telling my things, myself things that are actually real and true. And that is, is that right now there are no alligators on that park bench with you. There are no pythons at the bus station. <laughs> there are no tarantulas on your cell phone. There is nothing dangerous about this particular moment. Why is it that so many people feel so uh, uptight and afraid so much of the time when all they'd have to do is recognize, hey, man, right now I'm safe. Right now, there's no problem. Right now, everything is all right. Right now, no crocodiles, no alligators, no mafia, no SWAT team, uh, no Russians. Everything is okay. Everything is all right now. So these are wholesome thoughts that we start having. Once we get the uh, uh, thoughts of safety and security, then we can have the thoughts of comfort. Yes, I am comfortable. Everything is really okay. I feel good. The body is relaxed. In fact, that step four of Anapanasati of relax the body, this is it. Once we feel safe and secure, finally we can relax and feel comfortable. Once we feel comfortable and safe and secure, then we can add on satisfaction. Wow, this is really satisfying. Okay. Now, in the Pali Dictionary, safety, security, comfort, and satisfactions are all listed as the definition for uh, sukha. The word sukha actually is the exact opposite of dukkha. So if we can get ourselves even for a moment into a state of sukha, that means that we have fulfilled the goal of the Buddha. We are now in this third noble truth. We are in this moment free from suffering. That's what's to be practiced, is to get into this state. Uh, so we can say then that one of the practices, uh, one of the skills then would be the skill of getting into this state. And another skill would be to sustain it. Okay. Now there's another additional thing, and that is, is that once we over and over and over again can develop this state and stay in it for a little while, confidence begins to build. The confidence of I can do this. Okay, this is the Sama Sankapa. This is the change of attitude. And we change our attitude from being a victim in life wanting things, needing help, and, and getting beaten and feeling bad into being a winner, being a champion, being confident in, the, confident in the sense of I don't need anything, 
Nobody can touch me. Everything is all right. And we're feeling really successful at being able to get ourselves into this state of mind. Now, in one of the sutras, the Buddha actually states that when the mind is actually free from these hindrances, we can develop the skill of or the attitude of no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean that out, come to this present moment and deal with the reality of the situation, see the truth of the situation, no matter what, no matter how obstructed the mind gets. And so I offer several suggestions of people so that they can recognize how how obstructed your mind can get. And you can say, well, a minute, I could handle that. If I could handle that, then I can handle anything. Okay, an example of that, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that when one is sick, that's a good time to practice. The body is sick. The mind's not sick. The body feels bad, but I feel good. I could just lay here in bed and just enjoy the fact that nobody's expecting anything from me because I'm sick and I can just be happy being sick. Okay. Another example, uh, you're driving in the car down the road and you see red and blue lights and you hear the, the siren. The cops are stopping you, right? How are you going to feel? The first thing to have at that moment is some sati. Let's wake up, folks. Let's handle this well. But most people don't. They're afraid of the cops. So when the cop stops them, instead of being polite and um, honest and, and forthcoming and happy and uh, truthful, et cetera, like that with the cop, they become afraid of them. The cop then gets afraid, too, because he's picking up on your fear. If you're acting bizarre, he's going to put his hand on the gun. And if you reach for the papers that he's asking you for, he's going to shoot you because it's all a fearful situation. But you recognize that, hey, with this sati, you can plan on, you can even think about how uh, nice and polite and how easygoing your next stop is going to be so that you've got no problems with that cop at all. In fact, if you say something like, hi, officer, I'm really glad to see you out on duty tonight. You know, you guys in our town are doing such a great job. And I wanted to just tell you, thank you. If you start your conversation like that, the likelihood of you getting a ticket has just been reduced. The cops don't generally get people that are friendly and happy and glad to see them. All right. The next one, big deal. Someday you're going to die. How are you going to handle that? You know, sometimes in a great big fight and the guy gets stabbed and the, as he's dying, he's saying, I'm going to see you in hell. Now, is that a way to go? <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, poor me. No, we can finally say, death, where have you been? I have been waiting for you. <laughs> Gosh, I've had about as much of this whole world as I can stand. I've had about as much joy as I need right now. I'm ready to check out. Okay, that's the way to go, is to be ready for it. So that you can be um, friendly and joyful with your last breath, with your last thought. If you can begin to recognize that you can handle really big things like that because you can remember to put your mind in a good state. Now that is being a champion, not a loser. So we're going to, and that the poly word for this attitude, this can do attitude is called the word pity. 
Pitti and Suka work together. You could go so far as to say that uh, that we want to build up pity with these right wholesome thoughts so that we have one wholesome thought after another after another. And then when we get some gaps in these wholesome thoughts, we can really feel how great it is that we've talked ourselves into being a champion. And so here we are just filled with championship kind of feelings. Okay, but those begin to mellow down. And we begin to just be satisfied and safe and secure that that uh, success is built in, but it's not such a much of a wow as it was before. OK, so this is the uh, the practice of Anapanasati is number one is to get the mind into a good state. One wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. And those wholesome thoughts are talking us into feeling in a very, very alive, vibrant, wholesome, can-do way. These are the kind of thoughts that we're going to have. And when you practice that enough, then the attitude kicks in. I can do this. No matter what happens, I can do this. Okay. So we've actually now been talking about getting the mind um, cleared out and, and wholesome and with the uh, breathing, we're actually making the mind fit for work. The mind has gotten fit for work, which means that we can apply the mind to the wholesome and sustain it on the wholesome. We have sukha and pity, and we have no hindrances. This state that I talk about and talk to the students about this really good state that we can get in, in the suttas is referred to as first jhana. And yet you see on the uh, internet, on Reddit, and all of this kind of stuff, oh, my teacher says I was a, a soda pine now, or I was in first jhana now, and all of that kind of stuff. To where, in fact, no, it's actually quite doable. It's easy to do, but you have to make sure you've got all the right factors together with it. Okay. And so this, go ahead. You got a question. Well, so is jhana then... Um... It's not really because I thought jhanas were uh, meditative uh, states, but it, it seems yes. more something every day. Or right, those kind of jhanas are what people go deep into, and those are not the jhanas of the Buddha. That's okay. the jhanas of the Western mentality of wanting something. Okay, they want something. Here we are already in the state of we don't want anything. That's first jhana is not wanting a darn thing. You're just so good. Everything is just so wonderful. Everything is bright and up and full of energy and light. OK, so this um, the reason I think is because of uh, uh, our Western mentality of meditation came from the Catholic Church. Not from what and that uh, uh, you could go so far as also to say is even the Catholic Church was having influences on Buddhism in Burma, that these 10 day meditation retreats are actually quite new. That they come from the 1950s. It's only like 70 years these uh, 10 day meditation retreats have happened. Most people, when they practice, they don't practice for long periods of time in a great big group. And in fact, the Buddha doesn't say, um, uh, 
go sign up for uh, a retreat, pay $2,000 and attend the retreat. No, he says, go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to a heap of straw or an empty hut. But he doesn't say any particular time frame. You don't have to stay there. You just have to get away from it all. This is these uh, points are all about getting seclusion, getting away from things. Getting away from the world so that we can recognize, among other things, that we brought the world with us. If we're in the world then we can't tell the difference between the inside world and the outside world, but if we get really into seclusion and get away from it all, we run out that we didn't get away from it all at all. We brought it with us right up here. And now we have to get rid of it a second time. First, we get rid of it in reality, and then we get rid of it mentally by being um, uh, on alert, practicing for taking all of these unwholesome worldly thoughts out of the mind and put some happy thoughts, wholesome thoughts, contentment thoughts, states, comfortable, satisfying, successful thoughts in the mind. These are the kind of thoughts. Uh, the issue of the hindrances is mentioned in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, is mentioned in number 39, is mentioned in number uh, 48, the one that I was just telling you about, is all over the place that these hindrances have got to be removed. Also in uh, the Sutta number 19, two kinds of thoughts, these unwholesome thoughts have to be removed. In the exposition of the Eightfold Noble Path, right effort is actually specified as right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and put in wholesome thoughts. Okay, I can't get it any more detailed than that. And yet in Mahasi method, they say, start noting whatever is there. All right. If you're going to start noting whatever is there, more than likely you're going to be stuck in a bunch of hindrances. Hindrance, 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 hindrance. Dukkha, 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 dukkha. I see you, dukkha. More dukkha. <laughs> Everywhere I look is dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Not a drop. I will. You know I'm drinking it now. <laughs> and so that's the whole problem with the these methods of either choiceless awareness or the noting method are not either one following the practice or the teachings of the Buddha. The real teachings of the Buddha is, is that we must guard the mind to remove unwholesome thoughts. Now, some of those junk thoughts that we were talking about, the easy way to figure it out is about whether they're wholesome or not is, is that if these thoughts are about someone who is not standing in my face, mm -hmm. if these thoughts are about some other place that I'm not, in other words, if I start thinking about something in New York, that's unwholesome when I'm in Thai, on the island in Thailand. Okay, so something that's someplace else or something that's in a different time, having old memories or having plans about the future, thoughts about the past and thoughts about the future are not thoughts about right here, right now. Wholesome thoughts are about what's happening right here, right now. And right here, right now, there is no danger. I can think about all kinds of things that would be dangerous if I were in New York. I can think about all kinds of things that would be dangerous if, I, if this was 1492 and I was stepping off a boat onto an island. You know, There's all kinds of dangers if we can 
conjure them up, we will feel afraid. So we have to be on guard to make sure that we're not thinking of any thoughts that bring up uh, fear. Fear, And so thoughts of the past and thoughts of the future and thoughts about other places are in that gray area of dangerous thoughts. And because they're dangerous, we can recognize these things are not wholesome at all. Let's substitute them for something that's really wholesome. With the sense, hey, I do not have to think about that argument I had with Aunt Susie. Aunt Susie is not here. And if I think about that argument, I'll plan for the future, my future argument with her. And guess what? My future, my plans right now about my future argument with her does not take in the um, uh, the information of what she will actually say in the future in that argument. And so here I go planning my argument and I say this, that and the other thing. And she says, well, what about ism? And now I'm Oof. I have nothing. <laughs> so I wasted my whole time thinking about my argument with her when, in fact, when I saw Susie the next time, I could meet her with joy and happiness instead of wanting to argue and finish that argument. So thoughts about finishing arguments or straightening somebody else or answering emails. And uh, uh, basically, this is what... Um, Reddit and commentary and the uh, internet is all about. Is one-upmanship, you know, having arguments. This is why there's not so much happiness on the internet. This is one of the reasons why, for a while at least, it's good to avoid it, to uh, get away from it, to get off into seclusion so that we don't have to think about that guy who insulted me on the internet. Right, so this is the way that we practice now. And also to put on, even in the Anapanasati Sutta, even though the Anapanasati Sutta does not mention hindrances, it does talk about gladdening the mind intentionally. All right, so this is the way of getting started. Okay. The second question that we could ask, and we'll do this at another time, once you get the mind in a really wholesome state, what do you do with it now? Because that's the question. A lot of people don't even get to that second question. What do we do with it now? Basically, the easy answer is, is that now that the mind is fit for work, now that the mind is free from hindrances, now that the mind is really sharp and focused and ready to do the work, now is the time to actually do the Mahasi noting. Now we're going to actually note, but what we're going to note is the way the mind works, and we're also going to note only wholesome things. Then we're not going to be noting unwholesome things, because if we do, we throw it out immediately, and now we've got nothing left but wholesome things to look at. And so this is the way that we're going to practice. We're going to gain the four skills of right sati, right view, right effort, right attitude, put those together to build the skill of getting into the state of first jhana, which means now we're developing the skills of sati, of pity, of being free from the hindrances and building the skill of having the mind fit for work, to apply the mind to the wholesome and sustain it. These are all skills to be developed. 
That's why Anapanasati has stated the way that it is. And so right now we haven't really been talking about the fourth tetrad. We'll talk about the fourth tetrad later, but the important part is to recognize that the fourth tetrad needs to be done with the mind already in a wholesome state. So we're going to use the body, the feelings, and the mind to get the body in a really good feeling state, get the feelings in a really good feeling state, and get the mind in a sharp, focused, good feeling state. And now we're going to watch what's going on. Okay. So this is the basic intro to Anapanasati. That we're going to get the mind fit for work, and then we're going to do the noting of the, of the uh, Mahasi. We're going to really look at things the way that they really are. And so this is the practice. And while we're going to be looking at things as they really are, which means everything is temporary. Anicca Vata Sankara. As I breathe in, I see things change. And as I breathe out long, I recognize that's a change too. Everything is in flux. Everything is in turmoil, which means that anything that does come up will fall. I mean, even the pilots in uh, the First World War knew that one. Anything that goes up must come down. <laughs> Anything that comes alive must die. This is also the teaching of the Buddha. Anything that's born is going to go through old age. It's going to get broken and it's going to die. This is what we need to look at. These are real things. And Nietzsche, anything that comes up is going to fall back apart. And so this is what's wholesome that needs to be watched. This constant flow, this constant anything that comes up is going to fall away so that something new can arise. Very right. cool. Um, I just want to say my phone is at low percentage, so it might die at any point. Just just if it dies, that's why. Well, this this is a we're about finished with this talk. I think okay. that we've gotten enough to for you to get started now. Totally, I feel great about this. Um, I have one question that I don't feel like I super need to ask because I feel like I've gotten a good idea about how to deal with it um, just from other things that you've said. But I'm just wondering in meditation, I've noticed that like say, you know, you're sitting in meditation and you uh, you're trying to focus on the breath and like a song is stuck in your head or something and you know i say to myself aha i've caught you and i return to the breath thank you uh but then like the song is still going on so then i say to myself again like okay uh, the easiest way to, oh, uh, to put a song the easiest way to put a song out of your mind is to put another song in your mind okay and whatever song that was in there that you don't want it is already unwholesome. Never mind what kind of song it was. You don't want it. You've already determined that. So now the new song that you're going to put in your mind is going to be a very, very happy song. Something like zippity doo da, zippity a. <laughs> okay. Or that what a wonderful world. Yeah. Or uh, try not to get worried. Try not to let <laughs> it upset you. <laughs> everything's all right everything's fine okay these are the songs then that you would want to start singing and when you're singing those it's very much difficult for that old song to come back in sometimes you'll get bits and pieces of it in there but that's a, an improvement 
And so you could try, try a third song and go from song to song, but uh, the thong, songs that you're intentionally having are wholesome songs. Okay. Songs that make, that uplift, that make you feel good. Glad that you're singing those songs. Uh, but just when you're really focusing on like every single, uh, trying to focus on like every single moment that's going by or whatnot, you're every you're single moment. too hard. When okay. you do that, you're working too hard. Okay. This is relaxation. Okay, cool. This is not working. <laughs> Meditation that they do at the Mahasi Center, that's work. Sure. Okay, we're not working. We're relaxing. Okay. Okay. That's, that's all. We're, we're remembering to relax. <laughs> so a few things are changing focus now that this is not about um, uh, accomplishing something working hard and getting a reward and feeling good about the reward this is about learning to relax and being comfortable and happy and getting all the rewards and the feelings of all the rewards and we didn't have to do anything didn't have to work at all you just had to remember to keep applying something that's very easy to do Okay. Okay. All I'll right. do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Excellent. We'll see you again soon. I hope so. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. See you. Have a good one.